0: Welcome to the KERIS Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network amongst all academic institutions across the country. And Caris focused on precision oncology biomarker research. Our goal is to use the brain power amongst all of the collaborators to improve on the outcomes of patients with cancer. We continue our series of... Um, updating you on the most important clinically relevant information that was presented at the last virtual American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting uh, across various specialties. And today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Elizabeth Heath to update us on uh, really the top four to five abstracts in GU oncology that were presented at the ASCO 2021 meeting. Dr. Heath will introduce herself. Once we go on the air, but you probably know that she is an amazing clinician and researcher in GU oncology. She's a professor of medicine at uh, uh, Wayne State University and at Carmanos. She's an associate director of translational sciences. She has many roles that she will tell us about. But most important role is a researcher, a scientist, and a clinician who is patient-centric and cares about improving the lives of patients with GU cancers. So thank you for tuning in to the Keris Molecular Minute podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, to rate the podcast, and to write a brief review. Refer your friends and colleagues to the podcast. And without further ado, Dr. Elizabeth Heath on the Keris Molecular Minute podcast. Well, so here she is, Dr. Elizabeth Heath with us on the Caris Molecular Minute podcast. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time. I know that you are taping this while you are in the middle of your inpatient rounds and so forth, so it's very grateful for you taking time to uh, educate the masses on recent updates for from GU cancers at the ASCO 2021. But just a little bit about you. Tell uh, listeners uh, who you are, what you do, and what got you into geo-oncology.
1: Thanks so much, Chadi. I always enjoy talking to you, and I appreciate uh, just any opportunity to talk about uh, important updates. Um, So as you know, I am a medical oncologist uh, hanging out here in Detroit, Michigan at the Kermanos Cancer Institute. I've been here 18 years, and honestly, every day is a joy to be here. Uh, because we know what we're doing matters for our community. So when we have partners like you guys at Keras, it it's really makes that job a lot easier.
0: And by the way, for listeners who realize my email notifications, I would like to have a disclaimer. I really tried to shut down the notifications. I even shut down my Outlook and everything. And it is very clear that I am not tech savvy because the notifications still are coming out. All right, so Elizabeth, you're charged by telling us at least, I'm sure there are a lot of data from the ASCO 2021 meeting, but what we're asking, maybe the top three to five abstracts that you feel have some clinical relevance for community oncologists out there, for fellows or something have more clinical applicability. So let's start with number one.
1: Well, I think number one is one of the plenary sessions. You know, ASCO this year was very good to the GU community uh, and I would say the uh, report from the vision study, I think is something that everyone was looking forward to, whether you're a patient or a community organization or a physician or provider, PSMA, not just testing, but treatment has been top of mind, I think for the last two years, for sure the last year, everybody's just anxiously awaiting the results and it was reported. And I think that uh, uh, Dr. Morris, Mike Morris did a great job Um, in sort of reviewing what's happened to that. But the general, you know, the general idea is that it's a positive study um, and there's more to come with Lutetium 177 PSMA. I think it's exciting to have an actual Theranostics uh, type of drug, you know, available for uh, next steps. Um, You know, since that meeting, the FDA has put that agent now on fast track um, so it's got a breakthrough designation, which is good. Still hard to know when we're going to get it uh, and what are the stipulations. Uh, just to refresh everyone's you know, memory, um, the lutetium was given with standard of care. So this is not a lutetium versus something else. This is lutetium plus standard of care versus standard of care. Um, and it's important to recognize that the label, whenever we get there, might matter and that the standard of care was not chemo. Uh, it was a novel hormone therapy or perhaps just supportive care. Um, so there is a lot of nuance to this. And of course, the paper goes into that a little bit more. But I think as a practicing GU doc, um, to be aware that this particular compound exists and that there's probably going to be some activity you know, in the upcoming months is really important.
0: Elizabeth. Um from the, uh, the, just like maybe in one minute or the logistics of giving this, do you see this as radiation oncology nuclear medicine, medical oncology? Like, you know, how, how do you envision yeah. the logistics of administering this agent?
1: Well, I, I wanna make two comments. You know, the logistics is critical and we know it's critical because that that challenge presented itself right in the first nine months of this study. Again, full disclaimer, I was an investigator as well, and our site, you know enrolled a lot of folks on this study. Um, so I understand the need and sort of the hope behind it. But the radiation oncologist is the person that's administering it, but to get to that and understanding that there's a standard of care component, it's it's a really a, a collaboration of sorts with medical oncology. But the radiation oncologist is not working in a vacuum, right? Because you're going to need all of uh, their capacity to be up to snuff. And that might mean, you know, all of the licensing and availability and all of the physics folks trying to make sure that, you know, that part is correct. It's going to be a challenge, I think, for most institutions. And let's not forget that that sort of lack of um, communication almost derailed the study. You know, I think what was really important was that first nine months for the standard of care arm alone, there was a dropout of, you know, tremendous numbers, like over 50%. Uh, And you look at that and how the group was able to sort of, okay, let's reorganize and make sure that everybody's talking to one another and that patients who do sign up stay on, no matter what arm they're on. Um, It's really important to give credit, you know, to that. But In real life, I think it's going to be a big challenge.
0: And, you know, and and these are like in the study, obviously, like you and other investigators are the experts. So if anything, you know, the ability to do the logistics in the most optimal way, it happens on the study. When this becomes like, quote unquote, real world, it's not, I mean, people in the real world are not going to be as sophisticated at large academic centers in the logistics. So No, I agree. Paying attention to logistics is very, very important. Okay, number two.
1: So the number two is the other plenary, uh, which is uh, adjuvant therapy in kidney cancer. Um, And that was the keynote study, you know, looking at uh, pembrolizumab. And, you know, what do we do with that? Um, As many of the listeners may know, there's no FDA approved agent that prolongs survival in an adjuvant setting for kidney cancer we know that Sinitinib is approved, but not for overall survival. And the, the study sort of won't be able to answer that, even though time has passed, it's just not gonna be able to do that to a multitude of things. But Sinitinib is an option, I think, for high-risk patients, as long as they know that the gain is more for improvement of uh, you know, disease-free survival as opposed to overall survival. But the, but the keynote study, I think, adds another layer of possibilities What I find important about that is you're gonna have two camps of folks. You're gonna have the ones that say, listen, this is great. Obviously, even a quick first interim look at overall survival is looking promising, but until that data is there, I'm not gonna really do this for my patients who have no cancer. I mean, these are folks who've had nephrectomy. They're otherwise okay. I don't really wanna do that. And then we'll have the other camps that will be like, okay, listen, this is a high risk group. It's T3. Uh, I'm really uncomfortable. I know that they're fine, but they need to know about it. So what I think is gonna happen is you just need to have a balanced discussion with your patient. Your patient should know the opportunity is there for an immunotherapy as an adjuvant treatment uh, and know the pros and the cons, but you know, whether you decide to offer it or not really will depend on what you and your patient decide. I'd like to point out it's interesting to know kind of like who the patients were that enrolled in that study. So you had T2 patients with sarcomatoid features. So that that's a group that sometimes doesn't get looked at. You know, the T2s, you're like, eh, I really want to include them. But yes, they were part of it. And then you had the sort of technically the stage four, but no evidence of disease group. So a little different than other adjuvant trials. So I think we just have to see. Um, I, it's been interesting to see kind of hear the chatter, you know, around it. You're either going to be all in and say, this is a no-brainer, I'm doing it, or you're going to be a little bit more cautious and want to see the final overall survival. But I think the good news for patients is that, you know, there is an opportunity. And we also recognize the endpoints are different. You know, I think as physicians, we want to see that it really benefits the person by the fact they live longer. But from a patient standpoint, maybe holding off you know, actual uh, disease that pops up, that's very meaningful. So, like, don't poo-poo that. That might be super important to the person. And it's not really all about survival.
0: And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, you know, one of the things always intrigue me, and I'm curious uh, on your thoughts there, because there's an assumption that if you don't receive it in the adjuvant setting and you relapse, you are going to be able to get that drug and hence getting it as adjuvantly or as time of relapse may be equally effective and you can really hold off. But I think that's a big assumption because you can never know how someone relapses, right? They could relapse with so much burden of disease, performance tests declines rapidly. And they really, although, you know, you know, Pembro obviously is not, you know, real chemotherapy, but uh, I mean, that's a big assumption,
1: isn't it? It is a big assumption. You know, I think it's safe to say in the journey of kidney cancer, you're probably going to end up on an immunotherapy more than once. You're going to end up on a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, VEGF, more than once, sometimes together. And what we need to do as a community is come up with different targets that potentially could tackle this. You know, we have a wealth of drugs, but they tend to act the same way. Um, So we have to sort of expand that, uh, you know, offering. I think a lot of us do molecular testing in hopes of finding something new. You know, there is obviously a lot of data to look at what makes somebody have, you know, some bad prognostic indicators or, uh, you know, signs of aggressive disease, et cetera. But we don't know. And, you know, what the other challenging part is, this is all data in clear cell. Right. The non clears. that's why we all have to sit here and do more hand-wringing and go, yikes, what do I do with that? You know, should we offer that? Is it the same? Obviously, lots more data this year and the last year than we've ever had in the last 10 years, which is exciting. But it's it's mostly around the same type of agent. So it'd be great for those of us in, in this space to really come up with different targets.
0: Do you remember how long was the adjuvant? Like Pembro was given what for? Like oh, a year? One year one year therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you basically dominated ASCO with two plenaries, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, anything in non, in the non-plannary that intrigued you?
1: Well, I have to say that there's some chatter around piece one. Um, I think the question for men with castrate sensitive disease and prostate cancer, getting ADT and treatment intensification, you know, the, it's always the issue of, do we then do chemotherapy followed by an AR-targeting drug? Or is that just not important? Or should we just leave it alone and do chemotherapy? And I think, you know, there's some hints to show that the combination, although it has more side effects, might be something to consider, perhaps in more aggressive type of cancer. I, I would say that. The, the review is mixed, and perhaps many of us are actually looking at piece one to figure out what to do with the radiation question. <laughs> so it's trying to answer a whole bunch, but but I do think that's one trial to keep an eye on. Um, I was fascinated and it's made me think a little bit about should I be offering another AR drug? You know, I'm following the six treatments of docetaxel as per charted, but there's a lot of data to show that, you know maybe in the ones you're really worried about, you should start an AR drug earlier. So that that I think that's not 100 percent there yet, but I, I'm definitely starting to think about it a little bit more these days.
0: Elizabeth, just for listeners, what which, which study was that? Uh, piece so that
1: one? that's piece one. Um, so that is literally looking at men with castrate-sensitive disease and figuring out after docetaxel, should you start an oral drug, or you should just leave it alone, or you know should you do adt plus basically after the charted like after the six yeah. of of this mm-hmm.
0: plus adt do you stop and continue adt alone or do you switch to a ic
1: yeah and uh, you know it's always the issue of the more you do the more you get and get means side effects get means survival get means whatever to whatever is the person that it's most important to but it's a topic that i have to say from a you know, discussion t- standpoint has come up a lot in our advocacy programs here. You know, people want to know, have I done everything possible that I can do? Is there data to show that I should continue? Um, most men who select chemo, and there are still, you know, a good amount of men who select chemo, um, want to know they're done. You know, otherwise, like, well, why would I do chemo as well? Just stick to the, you know, uh, novel hormonal therapy, be it you know, abiraterone, enzalutamide, apalutamide, whatever is FDA approved. So it's an interesting topic as to, you know, how much is enough, when do you stop, or do you just continue until it declares itself and becomes resistant?
0: It, I always wondered actually, as we are using many of these agents early on, like whether it's charted or ABBY or ENZA and so on, it always made me wonder, would the disease when it becomes castrate resistant become really more difficult to treat? I mean, are we going to really have different clones of disease, but yeah, it's probably. Yeah.
1: That way. selection, sort of that selection pressure. I think we worry is that really gearing everything towards a more nasty version,
0: you yeah. know, of
1: how it started. I, I think you could find data both in, in both camps um, also preclinical data to support, but I'll tell you it's, it's also gonna lead me to sort of the three abstracts that are clumped together, yeah. which is the claims data. You know, so this is a discussion when you're on a trial and you can ensure who gets what on what arm, then you come to real life and then you say to yourself, hey, I wonder if we're doing it, you know, are we actually doing what is now standard? And I, I think the three abstracts that uh, were presented were from claims data You know, whether it's Medicare or a more uh, private uh, group, but at the end of the day, the idea of treatment intensification, it's not happening. You know, only half the people that I think technically should or could get an extra agent on top of ADT is not.
0: Were they able able to differentiate in that claim uh, data abstract academia versus community oncology?
1: No, um, I think the the Medicare was you know thirty five thousand people, so it was really just more cross cutting. I think it's interesting there where you see the disparity. So you know if the people don't get it, uh, those who uh, actually don't get it, you know more uh, black men are not getting it than white. So here we're worried about disparity going into a trial. Then you prove your point that the drug works now you have a disparity coming out of it because it's not happening in just routine standard of care. You know, we have our own internal data set as well that shows um, the same concern and maybe the prescribing patterns for oncologists and urologists are different. Um, And that is uh, certainly true. And we're investigating that a little bit more, again, for potential for improvement of education, you know, and awareness. Uh, Or if they make a decision that, you know, that particular patient doesn't deserve treatment intensification, there's a reason why. Um, And and that's the part we just don't know. Again, these are, you know, large databases. They're not uh, prospective studies in the sense that you and I are used to, but I think it does give some food for thought there to say, we do all this great stuff and do plenaries and get all these trials up and running and here's the right answer. And then it's like, uh uh-oh. We're actually not doing the right answer.
0: Well, it shows you, though, sometimes there are certain other barriers in the real world that occasionally we just don't appreciate in clinical trials. And I think that's where I've always been a big fan of pragmatic trials, where you really start to look at who are the patients and and, and so on. Um, anything else at ASCO 2021 from GU perspective that also intrigued you?
1: Well, I think, you know, to give a shout out to Bladder. So those of uh, folks listening. Uh, and leave
0: Bladder out.
1: I think the one, you know, one trial that there was a little bit of a um, longer term update was on the EV-103. So, again, in Fortimab, you know, in combination with Pembro, um, what what I think is important is that the uh, CR rate and the PR rate and, you know, in whom it's happening to, those with liver mets and so on, is, is holding. So that high number that we're seeing uh, for frontline and platinum ineligible is really showing some great activity. As you and I know that bladder landscape is changing all the time and and we're all just scrambling to see, oh gosh, which is the right combo. But it's exciting to me that the combination is continuing to hold in its its positive outcomes. And I'm, I'm keeping my eye out on, on that one and that combination.
0: It's really becoming a little bit difficult to figure out how to manage bladder cancer, because I mean, there's, I, I don't know, like, I mean, like in your, in your patients with bladder cancer right now, I presume you still do neoadjuvant therapy if you can for those before they go to surgery. But I think we're, at least, you know, I, I'm not seeing patients right now, but, but I always struggle with the idea. Okay. That some of the uh, treatments are for platinum ineligible, right? Like yep. IO therapy and so forth. And in trials, there is the strict criteria of platinum ineligibility, right? You know, I believe Matt Galski probably wrote about that long time ago. But, but I don't know whether the platinum ineligibility in the real world outside of trials, really people look at this criteria or it's a gestalt. Like you walk in there room, like, well, I don't think he can use this platinum. So I'm going to use this. Like, do you have yeah. that? Like, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I think it's getting more formalized. So in lieu of anything but more chemo, I think we all did the, you know, a little bit of the, oh, performance status, not so good, probably can't take platinum, and then you move on. But in, I think, today's world, knowing that there's immunotherapy, we're testing for FDFRs, you know, there is infortimab, there's sasetuzumab, govotecan, don't forget that, that was just newly approved. There's a whole bunch of different options. So I think people are paying a little bit more attention to the definition. I think there is cisplatin ineligible, and then there's just platinum ineligible. You know, we used to kind of roll our eyes, and I think I still do at times. You're like, okay, what? And a lot of it is, you know, do you feel that the patient is a carboplatin, you know, eligible patient? And then that sort of goes through that whole, you know, what category do you put the person in? I think people are paying attention a lot more now to GFR as opposed to creatinine. You know, they're starting to realize, oh, well maybe I should know what the number is if it doesn't get automatically calculated, you know, in the electronic medical records. So a lot of the sort of decision-making is, I think, a little bit more intentional than it used to be even a few years ago because we have other options.
0: Elizabeth, this was great. I mean, this is like a quick, quick, quick ASCO uh, 2021, all what you need to know about GU oncology. And I'm um, really grateful for your time. For um, I know that uh, being on the inpatient service is never uh, fun and uh, everything is crunch. So taking the time and uh, joining us, uh, uh, very thankful uh, t- for you, everything you do, and uh, everything that you're uh, contributing. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Javi.
0: Well, thanks everyone for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you letting me uh, know any ideas or suggestions. You can do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or sending me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. Thank you so much for supporting and tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Until next time, take care.